Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Filling in today, I'm Rick Samprin. A Toronto lawyer will review how Hamilton police responded to violence at Pride celebrations in June. Is it too early to put up Christmas decorations? Well, apparently it is in Texas. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has met with several political leaders this week as his new minority government prepares for the throne speech on December 5th. And Hall of Fame defenseman Bobby Orr is blasting Sportsnet for firing Don Cherry. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. To uh, lead off the program, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, well, a very important topic in this city uh, because a Toronto lawyer is uh, now going to review how Hamilton police responded to violence at uh, Hamilton Pride, the celebrations in June. Police Services Board agreeing yesterday to hire Scott Bergman to explore what happened. Lila Miklos is a former Hamilton Pride chair and joins us now here on the Scott Thompson Show. Lila, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you, Rick. Thanks for uh, coming on today. Um, why is this review so important? Maybe we'll start with that. Well, I spoke back at the July Police Services Board meeting uh, in support of uh, a motion that both Councillors Maureen Wilson and Narendra Nan put forward asking for this independent review. And they asked for this review in response to the attacks. Uh, what was what was the response from police services to the attack on Hamilton Pride? Um, so I was encouraged that this was moving forward. Um, and then the announcement got made today about what's this going to look like and who's going to be leading it. And some of the excitement I was feeling originally um, is, is being... Um, colored with a lot of caution at this point and maybe a slight um, wave of disappointment too. So why do you say that? Well, when I look over the the letter that uh, Maureen Wilson and Narendra Nan had sent to the Hamilton Police Services Board, they had asked that uh, they create a community review working group uh, that was going to be made up of marginalized community members to help uh, create sort of the terms and parameters and conditions of what this review would look like. That consultation in relation to the review and the queer community never happened. So when this lawyer made his presentation yesterday at the police services board meeting, um, there was a slight tone deafness to some of what he was, was saying and presenting about what his, his role is going to be. Um, and I think the, the the one that really jumped out at me was the fact that it is not his role to place any blame. And that was a bit of a red flag for me, because if we're not going to place any blame, then it also says to me that there's not going to be any accountability for what happened. Um, and that's really problematic. Also, he's asking people to email him. And I kind of feel like you need to meet marginalized communities where they're at. So consultations need to be happening one on one. I would if I were if I were in his position, I'd be contacting the Hamilton Pride Board, other organizations and support groups in town that support the uh, LGBTQ community uh, to get some one-on-one feedback and uh, just put it out there that they're going to have some focus groups and strategy sessions. I, I um, it's a very cold cold way to try to get a sense of what people need, and I feel that before we announced he was going to be the person, there should have been some consultation with Hamilton Police Services Board and the community about what should this uh, review look like. Um, And the other thing he said was that he wanted to uh, make sure that Hamilton Pride 2020 was a wonderful event, which again, I kind of feel goes outside the scope of what, what his role was or what we perceived his role would be because it was supposed to be about what, what did the police 
do or not do or do right or not do right in this situation was more the sense of what this was supposed to be about. So I, I was a little confused after hearing his introduction and message at uh, yesterday's Hamilton Police Services Board meeting. You hammer on a lot of uh, good points there. And and the one thing, or there's a couple of things that caught in my eye as well, but the one that caught it the most was uh, this review is not uh, going to place blame or determine any kind of misconduct is just to find out what happened. Um, I think most people know what happened. I think they want to know why it yes. happened, right? Yes, yes. So um, how how disappointing is that? Um, I, I've been sitting through a process right now uh, ever since the July Police Services Board meeting uh, where I had referenced the fact that uh, in the past there used to be a GLBT police task force uh, that was originally formed in response to Project Rosebud, which was uh, uh, investigations by the police where they were targeting gay men having sex in the RBG. And so there was a community response where they formed a, a group and to advise the police on why this is not proper behavior. And then over time, it sort of morphed into kind of an advisory committee. And then it died off uh, during uh, Glenn DeCare's time as chief. Um, I know that there was uh, several members of the board who were kind of holding on to the hope of maybe we could revive this and create a relationship between uh, queer and trans community and the Hamilton Police Service. So we have had, uh, we had a meeting in August. We just had another meeting in October uh, with members of Hamilton Police Services and also members of the QS LGBTQIA plus community. And they have been very difficult meetings with a lot of members of our community uh, reliving trauma uh, in front of uh, officers and staff. And uh, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. There's a real lack of trust there. And it's been earned, earned by the Hamilton Police Services. And every time we sort of kind of reach a step where maybe maybe there, there's a road, a path towards improving something here, um, Hamilton Police Services takes two steps back, whether it's it's uh, the chief on CHML making offhand comments or if it's uh, the interaction between uh, police and activists who are speaking out against hate groups and, and who gets arrested and who doesn't get arrested when these things happen. So um, it's, it's a very complicated, tense time right now between marginalized communities and the Hamilton Police Service. And um, the fact that there wasn't any consultation before this announcement to help create the guidelines of this, uh, again, it's, it's, it's very problematic. Uh, we're chatting with uh, Lila Miklos. Uh, she is the uh, former Hamilton Pride chair. We're talking about the independent review that is going to be undertaken uh, to um, in- investigate, for lack of a better term, the violence at Pride celebrations back in June. And uh, another thing that you pointed out, which I find kind of interesting, is uh, this uh, Toronto-based lawyer is going to be meeting with Hamilton police officers to review, uh, review police practices and protocols. But you mentioned there's an email set up for people to chime in, and uh, you can apparently also contact the Toronto law firm to offer your thoughts. It seems like uh, the opportunities, or at least the level of opportunity, is a little bit different from police compared to the general community. And maybe yeah. that's just done for you know ease, but still it seems, it seems to be very different. Well, and does the police service need to have that ease, or do marginalized communities that face barriers every day need some more right. ease in the way that they communicate with a Toronto lawyer? So that, that's the part that has me sort of questioning questioning the process that's going on here and it almost and in his announcement it almost kind of gave us so your your point of this is you're going to have said you've done this 
but does this mean that there's going to be any institutional or structural change? Because the scope of this investigation was so overreaching because it was speaking to systemic issues that the OIPRD said this particular complaint is far too big of a beast for us to take on, which again reinforced the need for an independent review. So um, I think because we're talking about some real systemic issues with the way that Hamilton Police Service interacts with marginalized communities, specifically with, with our 2FLGBTQIA plus community, um, this is going to be some hard digging work. And the people that you really need to connect with are the ones that have the most barriers and access and also just uh, a general fear of interacting with the police. There's a real lack of trust. So if I'm going to come forward and share information, how do I know that my uh, can I have some anonymity? Can I make sure that, you know, my name and email and address aren't going out there? Um, interesting to note that was just uh, the day before uh, Hamilton Police Services Board uh, met, there was an announcement from the Toronto Police Service in relation to the uh, independent review they're doing in relation to the serial killer who targeted gay men in Toronto's queer community, um, that they have created an, um, an online module for um, anonymous reporting for members of the community who don't feel comfortable reliving their trauma in front of some sort of tribunal or one-on-one, but would maybe feel more comfortable doing it anonymously online. So that might be a tool for uh, them to use. But again, the fact that there wasn't consultation with the community that you're trying to help, you know, reestablish some sort of positive relationship with the police force with, before you put forth, here's our guy, here's what we're doing, here's our timelines, um, very problematic. And also just as somebody who organized Pride for uh, about a decade, uh, that's a big event. And the day your event this year ends, you start planning for next year's event. And to not have any results uh, from this uh, review until June of 2020, also not really helping anyone in preparing for next year's celebration so we're we're kind of be going to be going into next year's pride celebrations in this slight state of limbo about where our relationships at what are expectations of service and i'm hoping that the hamilton police services board in some sort of some sort of way gets the message to the chief and the chief will then get the message out to uh the members of the service um what expectations are for next year and, and that expectation is also happening in consultation with communities. We only have about a minute, uh, and maybe not even that, but uh, do you anticipate, because of the timelines, and, and I know you're not the chair of Hamilton Pride anymore, but do you anticipate no. police to be invited to next year's event? Uh, I would not be the person to ask that question of. You would need to ask uh, Hamilton Pride uh, current organizers that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not expecting expecting that particular uh, policy to change, but I, I wouldn't be the one to give you a definitive answer on that particular front. It'll be interesting. Lila, I appreciate the time today. All right. Take care. You too. Lila Miklos is a former Hamilton Pride chair uh, talking to us about uh, the independent review that is being launched to uh, investigate violence at Pride celebrations in June and, more importantly, the police response uh, to that violence. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. When is the best time to put up Christmas decorations? Is it too early? You know, it's mid-December, or pardon me, it's mid-November. We're smack dab in the middle of the month. Well, there's a homeowners association in San Antonio, Texas, that says now is not the right time. It's too early. 
Claudia and Nick Simonis had put out a handful of Christmas decorations back on November 1st. Now, three days later, they received a letter from their homeowners association, which demanded that they take down the decorations until closer to the holiday. Now, the couple did not see the letter until this week, but once they did, they were absolutely in shock. Nick saying, I felt shocked and angered. Saying they don't know if it was actually a rule when families in the neighborhood can put up decorations for the holidays. So uh, they ended up putting up a large snowman in their yard, a few other inflatable decorations. And uh, the letter that they got specifically told the family they needed to remove the snowman until, quote-unquote, closer to the holiday season. The problem was that the letter did not indicate when exactly they could put the stuff out. Uh, Even though they're in the Christmas spirit, it's um, not the only reason why they put up their decorations so early. Claudia Simonis is eight months pregnant. Her due date is on Christmas Day. So they wanted to get everything ready for the double big day, Christmas and potentially the birth of their third child. So when is it too early to put up Christmas decorations? I say now is probably about the right time. You know, the weather is okay. You're not going to be freezing your buttocks off, hanging uh, your Christmas lights or decorating the yard. Now's probably a good time to do it. Let's ask a decoration expert. He's uh, the owner of Retro Festive. His name is Tyler Schwartz, and he joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Tyler, how are you? Hello, how are you? I'm great. I would, ass- I, I, would ass- <laughs> I would assume that it's never too early, according to you, to put up some Christmas decorations. Well, you're talking to the guy that runs a Christmas store uh, <laughs> year-round, and I go by the name Ty the Christmas Guy. So, yes, I think uh, anytime's a great time for Christmas decorations. So what does your house look like? Uh, you know what? Uh, it's At this point, we have not decorated yet because we have put all our energies into decorating our, our store in Oakville. And it's like a Christmas winter wonderland. And we've been working on that since the summer. So I kind of live and breathe Christmas year-round. So you're not taking your work home with you right yet? No. Well, not yet. <laughs> Our kids, though, are, are kind of a chip off the old block, and they've been pulling out the Christmas decorations. Uh, but Mom and Dad have been working around the clock at the store, so it's been uh, tricky to... You know, I, what's that they say about the cobbler's, uh, the cobbler's kids don't have shoes or something like that, right? Yeah. I, I, I understand where you're going there. Um so, uh, you know, no, November 15th to me, this weekend is a great time, maybe next weekend, a great time to put up the decorations because it's, it's not too cold. Uh, you know, people are getting into the Christmas spirit. Uh, you know, it's just around the corner. I think now's the perfect time. Yeah, I think so, too. And you know what? With all the the Santa Claus parades, like I, I, I know you're participating in one, and we're going to the Oakville Santa Claus Parade tomorrow. And, uh, you know, it's now's the time to get into the spirit. I really think, you know, any time after Remembrance Day is full steam ahead. But you know what? For those folks who, who can't wait to put it up on November 1st, I think that's okay, too. I really do. Toronto um, Santa Claus Parade is on Sunday. So, yeah, this weekend is perfect. Um in Texas, though, it might be a different story because we know, <laughs> I, you know, the, the weather's a lot different down there. It might not feel like Christmas. Um, True. So now, True. now might be a little early, or at least on November 1st might be a little early. Well, you know, I, I guess some people might think that. Uh, I think, you know, certain people uh, have Christmas in their hearts year-round, and I think 
great for them. And if you can't wait to decorate for Christmas, and obviously these folks had a, a legitimate reason too, you know, they were just trying to get ahead of the game. So I was, I was really surprised to hear that story, to be honest. Um, you know, where do we live and what, what age do we live in where, where you can't uh, put up your Christmas decorations without getting in, in trouble by someone? I, I think it's nuts. Yeah, it's not like they're your tasteless decorations, or uh, you know, it's it's not Christmas like. You know, these were legitimate, you know, inflatable snowmen. I mean, this is you know, tis the season, so to speak. Well, you know, talk about the Grinch or the Scrooge. Yeah, like, uh, who are these people that that uh, send letters like that? I I I'm I'm glad that it's not like that in my neighborhood, um, and and hopefully it, it's not like that anywhere around here. I know there's you know often overzealous uh, you know resident associations, but. I think that's taking it a step too far, to be honest. I agree. Uh, there's a study that uh, I'm going to read in a few minutes that basically uh, suggests that people who put up Christmas decorations early are happier. I saw that one, and I thought to myself, well, gosh, that must be re- why we're so happy around here, because, uh, <laughs> like I said, we're always, uh, it might not look like it in our home, but at our work where we spend most of our time, it's always Christmas. We're always listening to Christmas music. And uh, and we love it. And, you know, people always say, you know, you should do what you love. And I grew up as a kid loving Christmas. And I was that kid that, you know, when I was 10, 11 years old, decorating the whole house and the outside. And, you know, and the neighbors were like, who is this goofy kid? And uh, now I'm tired of Christmas guy. <laughs> well, I got to have you talk about uh, Retro Festive, not only the store, but the website, retrofestive.ca, because if someone is in the Christmas spirit or someone wants, wants to get into the Christmas spirit, this is the place to go. Yeah, you know what? If you are into Christmas and you haven't heard of Retro Festive or been to our website or been to our store in Oakville, you need to check it out because it is, uh, well, let's just say some people say it's like Christmas threw up. It's uh, it's all the kitschy, <laughs> crazy Christmas stuff you can imagine. We we have a, a special bent on a pop culture influenced Christmas stuff. So, for instance, you know we've got uh, Christmas stuff from Friends and The Office, and uh, you know all the Grinch and the Rudolph and the Frosty stuff you can imagine. And actually, this weekend we're having a big party at our store to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Christmas Vacation. Oh Chevy wow! Chase, yeah. So, what so, are there any deals or any special well, items? Yeah, we're, we're having uh, some deals. I, I, I don't know if you're in the market for a moose mug, but uh, who doesn't we, need one of those? We've got thousands of moose mugs, and we've got thirty uh, percent off of those. We've got uh, a certain style of the moose mug, for two for thirty dollars. So we're kind of going with that thirty theme to celebrate thirty years of Christmas vacation, and we're having a cousin Eddie costume contest. So if you uh, ever had a desire to dress up like Cousin Eddie, this is the time to do it because you can come and win a prize at our store. So uh, if we come as Cousin Eddie, uh, like with uh, uh, Las Vegas vacation, or does it have to be Christmas version? Honestly, anything. We'll we'll take it anything. Most people will show up with, you know, I don't know if you remember the scene where he wears like the black dicky and the and the see through white uh, yes. V neck sweater. So most people kind of do that, but yeah, if you if you want to pull out the the, the pale blue uh, leisure suit, yeah. that would be awesome. And uh, we've got a hundred and twenty dollar prize pack up for grabs. But anybody who shows up with uh, you know any hint of a cousin Eddie costume will have a special prize just for them. That's phenomenal. And, um, and where are you guys located thing, in Oakville? Uh, we're at eleven hundred Invicta Drive. Uh, that's just uh, kind of near Trafalgar and the North Service Road. Uh, it's our warehouse store, so you're, you'd be looking for kind of a warehouse kind of building. But inside, it's like Santa's workshop. It's incredible. Winter wonder. So I, I encourage you to come out. Awesome. Tyler, appreciate the time today. 
Yeah, thanks. Tyler Schwartz, uh, owner of Retro Festive. You can check him out, retrofestive.ca. It's a pretty neat website. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm pleased to confirm uh, that Parliament will be returning on the 5th of December, immediately following the NATO leaders' summit uh, in London. It's up to Mr. Trudeau to find common ground to get his throne speech passed. Uh, so I highlighted the areas that we would be focusing on, the, the parts of our platform uh, that we believe uh, should be implemented. Um, and it's up to him to decide what to do with that. I did not hear that there was going to be anything different. I heard more of the same. And I can tell the people of the province that I represent that I will not abandon the people in Saskatchewan. I will not abandon the, in- the industries that create wealth for, for the people that I represent. Well, I, I came in peace. I'm a friendly Manitoban looking to uh, help uh, in any way I can to restore a sense of faith in the future of the country and all regions of the country. We're, we're, uh, we're a miracle in our construction in Canada, and we're more than a sum of our individual parts. What has been discussed suggests uh, strongly that a lot of issues will be consensual. If Mr. Trudeau wants to deliver something like universal pharmacare, the Conservatives aren't, don't care about universal pharmacare. Um, the Bloc doesn't have an interest in delivering a plan that's going to help out Canadians across the country. For me, it's really clear. I want to deliver a universal pharmacare program that helps all Canadians. If Mr. Trudeau has any interest in doing that, He's going to have to work with me to do it. We can't vote confidence in a government that has a plan for disaster. A lot of different voices there from uh, political leaders this week that have met with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as the new minority government prepares for the throne speech on December the 5th. Welcome back. This is the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott. Well, we need an expert on this topic, a political science professor, and we look no further to McMaster University, where Henry Jasek joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Henry, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rick. We haven't had a minority government in Canada for a long time, uh, and and maybe we forget how it works, but it, it's really a tug of war, isn't it? Well, it is. Um, it, it's it's re- tug of war partially, but also managing the most important interests in the country, trying to p- get people to compromise. Uh, it's 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 a tough job, and uh, uh, you know, it, it, it just a, a prime minister just has to work work at it. it one uh, was very my favorite comment about it is Stephen Harper in a private conversation uh, to with Jack Layton, who in fact leader of the NDP, and uh, Fraser um, John uh, Harper said Stephen Harper said that managing a minority government gave him gave him a headache every day. He was he said I got to get a majority government. I'm tired of these headaches, and uh, <laughs> finally he got one, but he. He really had to struggle through a few, a couple of them there. But it's really all about, uh, obviously, making sure that the government still uh, can operate. You have confidence in the House of Commons, but right. you, you can't appease all sides here. No, you cannot. And actually, if he wants to, I mean, he can listen to a lot of these different groups, uh, opposition parties, uh, premiers. Um, and there's a lot of other groups that will be clamoring to be heard by him. <clears throat> but uh, at the end of the day, I think he he needs to have one other partner inside the legislature, the House of Commons, to keep going. I think that's going to be the NDP and uh, the others. I mean, they may try to do a little bit to help them, but it's going to be hard because uh, we have different interests. I mean, we know that the uh, the Premier of Quebec and the Premier of Alberta really don't like each other, and they think their interests of the two provinces are 
diametrically opposed. Um, so it's, it's not going to be easy uh, keeping people happy. I think he can keep the government going maybe for a couple of years, but he's, he's not going to keep everybody happy. And, and depending on the situation or the comment or, or what happens in the House, the rhetoric from Alberta is going to play a part, the rhetoric from Quebec is going to play a part, and the rhetoric from a leader who's not getting their way is also going to factor into all this as well. Oh, yeah. He has to think about them and try to not make them too unhappy. But uh, certainly just looking at Quebec, I mean, Quebec is his, is the pr- uh, prime minister's home territory. He is going to be very sensitive, I think, to what the premier of Quebec wants, uh, what the leader of the bloc, Quebecois, wants. Not that they're going to have everything they want, but he's going to be very sensitive because that's his home base. Uh, he he has to do that, and he can't he can't allow his home base to be really you know, weakened any more than was weakened in the last election. But in terms of uh, being alive, uh, staying alive in the House of Commons, uh, I think he's really, the only real strong support he'll get for a while is uh, is from the NDP. And because he can probably, you know, do some of the things the NDP wants or start doing some of the things, and I think that'll keep the the new Democrats happy at least for a couple of years. The balancing act between uh, what the prime minister does and doesn't do, especially between the bloc and you know uh, Jason Kenney in Alberta, the premier of Alberta, is going to be, I think, one of the most interesting dichotomies of this new session. Because if he sides too much with the bloc, you know, Kenney's just going to play on the uh, uh, you know Western alienation card. I mean, he's probably going to play on that anyways, right. and, and and vice versa. If if uh, uh, Trudeau is uh, you know uh, keeping his eyes on the West, uh, the bloc is going to say, hey, remember us? We're we're able to prop you up. Uh, you might uh, you know lose our confidence. Well. I think, I think, in fact, I think the people, and, and Kenny in particular, but the, the 70% of the people who supported Kenny, at least, at least in the last election, are, are going to find out that the biggest problem they face is really not the federal government. The real problem is the economy, is that what they have to sell on the mar- world market um, this, uh, is essentially doesn't bring them as much money as it used to. And they're, they're going to have to get, uh, you know, reorient their com- uh, um, um, economy, they're going to have to get used to the idea that they may have to uh, uh, change some of their government policies, particularly by taxation. They've had very low taxation because they've been living off of, in the past, very high uh, prices for oil and gas. That that situation doesn't occur anymore. And 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 you know the while a lot of uh, people who uh, support uh, carbon fuels of one type or another blame, you know, are hostile to people who want to go to more sustainable fuels. The big problem they really face, not only in Canada, but the U.S. and other places, is that there is, you know, the economy, economic factors are changing uh, people's consumption habits, certainly in North America and to a certain degree in Europe, uh, to go towards uh, more uh, sustainable uh, fuels and 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 oil and gas is simply not going to be as profitable as it used to be. Our guest is uh, Henry Jasek, political science professor, McMaster University, here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott today. The throne speech sets the tone for the next session of Parliament. How important is this throne speech? I think it's very it's very important because it tells us uh, who essentially is going to be. <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, you know mollified in, in the upcoming election. I ex- uh, Sorry, uh, upcoming uh, parliament. I expect... <coughs> excuse me there. 
Uh, I expect that's going to be the NDP. I think we're going to see some expansion of the welfare state, particularly in health with PharmaCare, uh, some beginnings of that. Also an intention to move ahead at some point with some sort of dental care and also maybe something on affordable housing. I think those are probably the three. He can he can start spending some money and putting in some plans on that, and I think that'll keep the NDP happy for a while. But some of these other issues, uh, that especially ones that are very divisive between groups, uh, whether it's the pipeline, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, um, trying to do something for the Western economies above and beyond what's already been done, I think it's going to be it is going to be difficult for those things to be done. We'll have to listen to see what he's going to say, but it is going to be uh, it is going to be a problem. The pipeline obviously is going to go up against what the Greens want, and so they're they're, they're clearly. I mean, Elizabeth May's already singled this. They're very unhappy with uh, with where they think things are going to go, or where they suspect they're going to go. Uh, so we'll have to it's it's we'll have to see just listen and. And see who who really you know comes out there the the winner among all the people who are uh, on the sidelines or who are not part of the government and who's who's going to get what. You mentioned uh, Elizabeth May, the uh, outgoing uh, Green right. Party leader, uh, met with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau in Ottawa today, uh, and uh, she has basically come out to said uh, you know her her three members of Parliament are going to vote against uh, the throne speech unless the Liberals can dramatically hike the country's target for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to be in the throne speech, but it's certainly a symbolic statement, if nothing else. Well, it could be symbolic, but I think the Greens want more than symbolic. They want something that has some dates and some some new targets uh, on that. Uh, I think the Greens are going to continue to be the most uh, disappointed. I, and I don't, I don't expect that there's going to be uh, really strong language about about climate change beyond what we've already what beyond what the government has done um, uh, already the federal government has done already so I don't think the the Greens are going to be happy with that I think the, the the any of the new initiatives with some concrete dates times expenditure of money I think are going to go the way that the uh, on things that the NDP has mentioned uh, as being very important to them. Did we hear anything offside or surprising this week in terms of whether it was uh, Andrew Scheer or Scott Moe, Brian Pallister, uh, Francois Blachette? Uh, did anybody kind of surprise you with their comments after their meeting with uh, the Prime Minister? Well, I mean, the the virulence of, uh, well, both of uh, the, the the premiers of Saskatchewan and, and Alberta, I mean, it's, I mean, a very what surprises me in a way is that uh, you you compl- they complain that you know they're not they don't have any voice in the government when they're you know when the people in their province basically almost uh, completely uh, vote for uh, an opposition party, the opposition conservatives, and so how do they expect I don't know to have a voice at the cabinet table when they don't they don't elect any liberals? So uh, you know that. That, that that does you know I I don't think that argument makes sense to me that you can't expect a a, a, a province that it goes completely all the way for the opposition uh, to have much voice in 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 the in the government uh, you know you need to have and and then they come out being very angry and sharp with the with the federal government after the election that I don't I don't think that makes much sense I don't think they're going to be successful. Uh, getting a whole lot, and then particularly they have a real problem in that, as I said earlier, I think the major problems facing Saskatchewan and Alberta 
our world economic conditions. Uh, so it's the economy that's the problem, and and the federal government has very little, you know, control over over uh, you know uh, international trade uh, and and what people pay for the things that the uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan government and society has on to offer other people. Which leads me to believe that uh, you know no matter what the prime minister says on uh, December the 5th that we're going to we're going to hear the same things that we've been hearing from uh, the Jason Kennys of the world the Scott Moes of the world that you know nothing has changed well they will hear that i mean they're going to slowly mute it i think already kennedy kenny is starting to do that a bit cuz they you know they it they have to work i mean anybody who wants something out of government has to say if I, I have to make an argument that's doable, something that that is the government can and is able to do, and I just get the sense in listening to the two premiers from Saskatchewan and Alberta, they're asking the premier to do things, or the prime minister to do things. I don't think he can do. Um, that that that's that's a real problem. If you make if you make relatively extreme exa- uh, demands, uh, even if the prime minister wanted to do something about it, he looks at it and said, I can't really satisfy these people. And so they, so he looks to other people like the NDP, and we heard the NDP remarks are very interesting. They say they're the priorities. They don't threaten that they're going to bring down the government, but this is what we want to see, and we're willing to work with the government. So the NDP, out of all the, you know, out of many of the voices that we heard, uh, has been very reasonable. Now there have been some of the premiers have been reasonable. Certainly the New Brunswick premier has been quite reasonable, and the and the, and the Manitoba uh, premier to a certain extent. But uh, the NDP, I think, is, you know, in the best position because not only holds the balance of power, but they also have a, have a uh, um, you know, a set of, the, of, of expectations and demands that, that the government can at least partially satisfy and probably think that they can make them happy, as I said, once again for two years. And that's why I think, the, the, you know, the government is likely to tend towards the... Uh, agenda of the new Democratic Party. Every uh, session of Parliament is different. What do you think the Prime Minister has learned in his first go-round as PM? Well, first of all, he needs better. He needs to be more careful with his cabinet ministers. He made a big mistake, I believe, in the uh, beginning. He appointed a lot of cabinet ministers who had who were really green. They had not they had not served uh, in a government before. They had not served in the, in the uh, House of Commons. Uh, and then he made them then he put them into important portfolios, and he also raised their expectations of how much power and influence they were going to have. And I think to a certain extent, these are people who really, a number of them who really didn't understand or had a, a, or, or had an inflated view of their own powers and didn't realize that essentially cabinet government is a, is a, is a team sport. You have to compromise inside the cabinet and when there's a dispute, finally uh, the, the prime minister is going to you know, make the decision. That's the way how the cabinet works. And I think some people were surprised when that happened and that uh, they were upset with the government. Some of the ministers were just out of their depth in terms of trying to handle their portfolios. So I think he has to be much, you know, more careful. He has to put in people who, who can do the job. And, and I think that'll be easier this time. But I think he's learned that you just can't, Take people who basically, you know, look good before the camera and look like fresh faces, and and give them the job when they don't have the experience, the understanding 
of, of what, what it entails to be a cabinet minister. That, I think, is the, a very big thing. Well, it's going to be exciting to see uh, not only the cabinet with the throne speech, but the next session of Parliament and see how all these parties kind of work together. It's going to be fun to watch, I think. I, I, I certainly think so. Minority government, at least to me, is, is always very interesting because there's, you know, there's always uh, some surprises. Henry, as always, appreciate the time today. Okay, very good, Rick. Nice talking to you. You too. Henry Jasek, political science professor at McMaster University. Always some great insight in terms of uh, the inner workings of Parliament Hill, and how, uh, especially with this minority government, who haven't seen a minority in, in many years, how uh, these parties are going to get along, or how they're not going to get along. It might be more the latter than the former. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You remember hearing this. Downtown Toronto, forget it, downtown Toronto. Nobody wears a poppy. You people love, you, you, they come here, whatever it is, you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey, at least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. These guys pay for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. These guys paid the... Uh, the biggest price. Well, the you people comment, as it's been come to know, has uh, led to the firing, as uh, we all know, of uh, Don Cherry from Rogers Sportsnet. Well, today, legendary defenseman Bobby Orr blasting Sportsnet for firing grapes. He's not a bigot. He's not a racist. You guys, Glenn, you know him. I do. Just, yeah, this guy is the most generous, caring guy that I know. And uh, what they've done to him up there uh, is, is just disgraceful it really is he's it's a new world i guess uh the freedom of speech doesn't matter uh but he's he's gonna be fine i talk to him every day and grace is gonna be fine and and uh, he's getting some nice calls from his friends here in boston he's getting he is getting some wonderful support he really is but he's 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 hurt uh, but he's going to be fine. Graves uh, is going to be just fine. Now, it was Hall of Fame defenseman Bobby Orr on Boston radio station WEEI earlier today. We thank them for the audio. Uh, the first hockey night in Canada since Cherry's firing is going on tomorrow night. And he spoke with Global News earlier on this week. I think it was Wednesday. And he said, that, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel kind of weird when Saturday night comes and he's not there uh, to do Coach's Corner. So, yeah, that's going to be an eerie feeling, I'm sure, for him because he's done it for, you know, over three decades. But I have to point this out as well. Tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock, Grapes is going to join uh, Roy Green on the Roy Green Show here on 900 CHML. So at 3 tomorrow afternoon, you want to tune in for that one-on-one interview. And Roy has known Don Cherry for eons, so that should be a very special uh, interview between those uh, two individuals. Uh, I, mess- I mentioned Jess Allen as well. Now, she was on The Social earlier this week when uh, she got in the hot water for saying this. I don't worship at the, ho- the altar of hockey. There's a certain type of person in my mind, in my experience, who does. And they all tended to be white boys who weren't, um, let's say, very nice. They were not generally thoughtful. They were often bullies. Uh, Their parents were able to afford to put them, you know, spend $5,000 a year on minor hockey. And for me, Don Cherry is the walking and talking representative of that type. So those those comments were offside as well. She took an enormous amount of flack, especially on social media. The hashtag Fire Jess Allen was trending something serious. Uh, But she has kept her job because not only she, but I think a network executive uh, went on air and apologized for those comments. So... And that's something that Grapes did not do. Ron McLean did, 
Uh, Don Cherry not too happy about that, but uh, Jess Allen uh, continued to be employed uh, by uh, the folks who run The Social. Uh, If she didn't apologize, she would have had to go, right? I mean, she would have had to go. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. But I think she saved her bacon by saying sorry, and uh, rightfully so, because uh, you talk about painting a uh, group of people with one big, wide brush. Yikes. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.